We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of, to those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Betrayal, the 1919 World Series and the Birth of Modern Baseball. The publisher, Oxford University Press. The author, Charles Fountain. Please join me as we welcome Charles Fountain to the clubhouse. Thank you. And thank you. Thanks so much for coming from, uh, uh, Charles is actually a professor at Northeastern, so he took mm -hmm. the train down today, so thank you very much for coming. And uh, thank you for writing the book. The book is fantastic. Uh, I learned a, a ton on this, and I'm sure even those who, we get some extremely knowledgeable folks in the, in the clubhouse crowd, and I think they're gonna feel the same. Mm -hmm. uh, so to just get us going, there is the, the, the famous book, Eight Men Out. Uh, is it uh, Asenoff or Asenoff? Uh, uh, um, I've heard it pronounced both ways. Okay. I've, I've always pronounced it Asenoff. So. All right, so we'll go with Elliot Asenoff's okay. Eight Men Out was out there uh, about 50 years ago or so. Mm -hmm. uh, what spurred you to write this book, and how did this particular book come about? Well, um, everybody who writes about the Black Sox owes a great debt to Elliot Asinoff uh, and to Eight Men Out. And everyone who writes about the Black Sox labors under a great burden because of Elliot Asinoff and Eight Men Out. That, uh, you know, he told the story beautifully, and he kept the story alive, and he kept the story in front of the public for these 50 years, because the book, I don't think, has ever been out of print. Um, but he left something to say, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, great. That Elliot Asanoff first conceived of Eight Men Out as a screenplay, and his first treatment of it at, was as a screenplay. So he saw the story in dramatic terms, and when he, you know, uh, came to a dramatic moment, he let his imagination uh, mesh with the facts. And there are, you know, a number of scenes in Eight Men Out that, uh, that never happen. There's no foundation in history for uh, these things happening. And in fact, there's considerable proof that they did not happen. Um, but because Eight Men Out was so surely written, was so popular, was so widely read, that uh, the stories in Eight Men Out have been perpetrated in all of the subsequent histories, and there are no source notes in Eight Men Out. But if you look in the source notes at you know, subsequent stories on the Black Sox, and you see, well, where did he find out this, and where's the source of this? It goes back to Eight Men Out. Um, <laughs> and when people at Sabre conventions uh, asked Elliot Asanoff and at a Hall of Fame conference once, you know, well, where did you find out this? Where did you find out that? And how did you find out this? Um, his answer was always, well, it's in my notes, I can't remember. Well, his notes are now uh, part of the archive at the Chicago History Museum, and I can tell you I've been through those notes, and it's not in his notes. There's, uh, there's really very little in his notes um, that, uh, you know, he wrote this from, um, you know, the, the historical record, the, uh, you know, the newspaper account. He did talk with uh, Hugo Friend, the presiding judge at the criminal trial, and he did talk with Hap Felsch, who was the only surviving Black Sox uh, member who agreed to talk with him, uh, that, uh, you know, that judging by his notes and judging by uh, what's in the book, he did not get, you know, a great deal out of uh, uh, that interview with Hap Felsch. Um, the two scenes that I think are, uh, you know, most fictitious 
are the, uh, the scene, and they're both triggers in the book. Uh, the scene where Eddie Seacott agrees to be a part of the fix because Charles Comiskey has denied him his $10,000 bonus for winning 30 games, keeping him out of the lineup over the last uh, you know, weeks of the season so he would end up with 29 and not 30 wins. Well, Eddie Seacott's salary card in the Hall of Fame uh, shows no bonus. There is no bonus in any of the White Sox players' salary cards at that time. They weren't a common piece of the baseball salary structure there. And moreover, if you look at the, uh, the, the record from 1919, Seacott pitched right up until, you know, he took his regular turn right up until the last four or five days of the season when he didn't pitch because he was going to pitch. He pitched, you know, five games out and then he was going to pitch the first game of the World Series. Um, the other scene that, again, is a wonderfully dramatic moment, and it's uh, you know, one of the, the moments that the book, and particularly the film, hinge on, is the threat to Lefty Williams the night before the final game, uh, where uh, this thug comes up as Lefty Williams is walking on the street with his wife outside the apartment and threatens that if uh, the game is not lost in the first inning, and when Asanoff wrote this, he wrote it with exclamation points, um, that uh, if the game was not lost in the first inning, exclamation point, uh, you know, something would happen not only to Williams, but to his, um, to his family, to his wife as well. Well, uh, the biggest problem with that, uh, well, there's two big problems with that. Number one, Asanoff admitted to making up the character. Uh, he said he wanted to protect himself against plagiarism. Um, <laughs> But the other piece of it, which is, uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways even more germane, when um, that threat allegedly took place in the uh, early evening as Lefty Williams was walking home from dinner on the evening before the final game, the eighth game of the series, Lefty Williams was not in Chicago at all. He was on the train with the rest of the White Sox coming back to Chicago from Cincinnati. The train didn't get in until about 10.30 or 11 o'clock that night. So, um, you know, there's another uh, hole in that. But, you know, it is a book that captures the essence of the story, and it is a book that has kept the story alive for this half century. And, you know, as I said, everybody who, um, who labors in the vineyard of the Black Sox owes a debt to Elliot Asimov. Well, it's interesting that he... He said he uh, wrote this with a, a like a screenplay in mind, mm -hmm. because when I read your book, it felt like a very biblical story to me. Is is it? Uh, did that really happen? Is it myth? Did that did that person exist? It, mm -hmm. it, it felt the, the entire thing felt biblical, in a, in a good way. And uh, so I think if uh, before we get to 1919 in the ba and the Black Sox, you have some. Uh, Fascinating background, which I think a lot of people may not know about. The, I think the impression is, oh, these guys through the World Series, they got paid by gamblers, and they were bad guys, so, you know, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, about gambling that was actually prevalent in professional baseball, uh, hippodroming in the 19th century. And then we can get to 1903, uh, the Intercity Series and Jack Taylor. Mm -hmm. if, if you can maybe just give us a little bit about that to, to kind of lead us into, so we, before we get to 1919. Yeah, that I think um, 
maybe less so in history than in, in the moment, in 1919 or in 1920 when this story actually broke. The American public sort of saw it as this one-off aberration and was shocked by the, you know, the scandal inherent in baseball players defiling the game and in F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic phrase, trifling with the faith of 50 million people. Um, but gambling and baseball were, you know, uh, I, I say good twin and evil twin, uh, you know, honest baseball and crooked baseball sort of grew up together. Uh, that uh, Jay mentioned the word hippodroming, that uh, you know, there are not, aren't a lot of dictionaries today that include the word hippodroming, but in uh, the 19th century any newspaper reader, any baseball fan would have known that the word meant uh, playing in a contest the outcome of which has been prearranged. Uh, and uh, you know, that's, fixed ball games were, uh, were commonplace in the early game. So much so that when the National League started in the late 1870s, mid-1870s, by the late 1870s, fixed games were so prevalent that the president of the National League, who was also the president of the, um, the Chicago team, called the White Stockings at the time, said enough was enough, that they were going to stamp this out. And uh, that four members of the Louisville Grays were thrown out of the game. And that sort of got everybody's attention. And gambling sort of quieted down. But with the merger of the American and National Leagues in 1903, it made a comeback. That you mentioned the 1903 City Series between the White Sox and the Cubs, where um, Jack Taylor, who won, I forget the exact numbers, but uh, he had won 21 games or something in the uh, regular season, and then lost three in the City Series to the Cubs. And he was accused of throwing it, and he was traded to St. Louis. And when he came back the following year, the reporters asked him, you know, uh, about the rumors that he had thrown that series, and he said, why shouldn't I have thrown those games? I got $500, for the $500 from the gamblers for losing them, and uh, you know, I was only going to get $50 for uh, you know, playing them for uh, you know, my boss. So um, this was sort of the start of a re-emergence and a re-entry of gambling and fixed games into Major League Baseball. And the reason it was able to thrive and grow over those two decades in between the merger and the 1919 World Series was the National Commission didn't want to hear anything about it. That uh, rumors were not good for baseball. Rumors of crooked baseball obviously were not good for baseball. But the only thing worse than rumors uh, were pro was proof that those rumors were true. So the National Commission, the three-person body that ruled baseball, stuck its collective head in the sand and said, we don't want to know any of this, that there were a couple of players brought before uh, the league presidents, brought before the National Commission. They always found no grounds for any uh, action. So the players got ever more brazen because they knew that uh, you know, this was going on. And when you know, a player, Hal Chase, the Babe Ruth of ballgame fixers, uh, you know, was brought before uh, the National League president, the National League by Christy Mathewson, no less, who was his um, manager at the time in Cincinnati, and uh, you know, the game did nothing about that. Then everybody around the game said, "Well, you know, why shouldn't we do this as well? I mean, they're not going to do anything. Uh, even if you're caught, even if somebody accuses you of something, nothing's going to happen." And uh, you know that uh, that was what it. Uh, that's what what it made it more brazen. That, you know, the, the astounding fact of the Black Sox scandal was not that it happened, but that it took so long to happen. And uh, we'll, we'll talk directly about the, uh, some of the events in the, in the World Series and the Black Sox scandal, but kind of skipping ahead for a moment, the story doesn't really break 
it's not like there was this Black Sox scandal, uh, there was this World Series, and then there's a trial the next day or something. Like mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't happen until I think September 1920 when the story gets out there. Maybe rumors were out, but how did what happened? The series was rife with rumors, um, but they were always rife with rumors because there was you know so many gamblers uh, you know hanging around that the uh, you know the lobby of the Hotel Sinton. Uh, which was headquarters for, you know, the White Sox and the official Major League Baseball party in Cincinnati the night before the first game. The lobby the night before the first game looked like the, uh, you know, the betting windows at Belmont on the day of the <laughs> Belmont Stakes, that, uh, you know, there was money openly changing hands uh, there and a lot of that money. And there were always sort of uh, rumors that uh, this game was fixed or, you know, that these, this series might not be on the level. And the writers had heard this, and you know the writers were you know sufficiently um, alarmed or concerned about those to discuss them amongst themselves and to uh, say, well, we're going to watch very closely. But what they saw, well, you know, I put the question to you: Does anyone think that Ioannis Suspetis was trying to throw the first game of the World Series when he didn't catch that fly ball the other night? Uh, you know that no, it was you know it was an error. It was an unfortunate play, but it was part of the game. And all of the eras and all of the uh, moments that we look back now, knowing that there were ball players on the take, and we look back now and say, "Aha! This must have been it." Uh, you know, Happy Felsch misplaying a fly ball. That uh, you know Eddie Seacott muffing a cutoff uh, throw from the outfield. These must have been uh, you know deliberate <laughs> errors. But when you saw them, uh, they were no more deliberate errors than uh, you know that uh, that fly ball that turned into an inside park, the park home run the other night. And uh, let's talk about some of the players, and then we'll get into mm -hmm. some of the non-players. Uh, the most famous that even non-baseball fans know of, I think, because of Eight Men Out, uh, uh, Field of Dreams and some other, and maybe his name, Shoeless Joe Jackson. And the other player that I found, uh, the other character that I found uh, fascinating, and character is said with uh, utmost respect, uh, Buck Weaver. Mm -hmm. If uh, both thrown out of baseball, uh, if you could just talk about those two for a moment. Yeah, you know, that uh, Buck Weaver is certainly the guy who deserves the most sympathy in this. That uh, all Buck Weaver did was not rat out his friends. That uh, he knew about the plot, he was recruited to the plot, and he refused to take part. Uh, he vehemently, uh, you know, uh, refused to take part. He did not accept any money, that he played his uh, best during the series and played very well during the series. Uh, you know, unlike some of the people who, uh, you know, weren't under suspicion who didn't. Eddie Collins in the Hall of Fame batted 222 or something in that series. Um, so, and Buck Weaver was, you know, grievously wounded. Buck Weaver wanted to sit, to set himself apart from the other seven players. That uh, he spent his entire life uh, trying to make the case that he was different. And he certainly did with the public. Uh, that, uh, you know, history has judged him to be, you know, an innocent victim of circumstance in all of this. He was never able to set himself apart with Major League Baseball. He tried, you know, three or four times with Judge Landis to win reinstatement very soon after the trial, trying to resume his career. But then in the 1930s and 40s as well, long after his, uh, you know, the opportunity to play was gone, he wanted to, um, you know, just clear his name uh, so he could stand proud. 
he appealed to Happy Chandler after Landis's death, and he appealed to Ford Frick after uh, Frick became commissioner. And you know, his last appeal to Frick was just a few months before his death in, I think, 1956. Uh, Joe Jackson is the guy that keeps this story alive, that uh, we wouldn't care about this were it not for, for Joe Jackson. First of all, you know, he gives it that resonant phrase, say it ain't so, Joe which of course was not the way that it uh, you know, was first uh, came into the conversation. The, uh, the way it first came into the conversation was that uh, you know, on the day he confessed to the grand jury, which was September of 1920, he came out of the courthouse uh, on West Hubbard Street in Chicago, and uh, there was a crowd of people there, and according to Hugh Fullerton's story in the Herald Examiner, one little urchin ran up and grabbed Jackson's coat sleeve and said, it ain't true, is it, Joe? And Jackson replied, yes, son, I'm afraid it is. And the kid replied, well, I never would have thought it. Now, that story was printed, and then it was widely reprinted, but it ain't true, is it, Joe, became say it ain't so, Joe. Because uh, you know the newspaper writers of that day, even when they were stealing something, they couldn't get it. Um, so, um, you know, so say it ain't so, Joe, uh, you know, is the, the phrase that has sort of uh, passed into the language. Let me finish with that, you know, that scene on the Hugh Fullerton story, that um, the common consensus of people that have followed this story is that Hugh Fullerton made that up, um, that uh, nobody else heard it, that Fullerton was accused of uh, fabricating some, uh, you know, things in his career. But um, my take on this is that it doesn't matter whether Hugh Fullerton made that up or not. Look at what's there. Uh, that in three lines, uh, it ain't true, is it, Joe? Yes, son, I'm afraid it is. Well, I never would have thought it. In three lines, you've got a Shakespearean tragedy in miniature. Uh, you've got hurt, betrayal, bewilderment. You've got the young boy robbed of his innocence. You've got the uh, great American hero stripped of his aura, stripped of his dignity. Uh, it doesn't matter whether this happened or not, Hugh Fullerton nailed it. Uh, that, uh, you know, that is the entire Black Sox story in, uh, in three lines there. Um, but, you know, the other piece of Joe Jackson is um, that he's kept the story alive. If it were just the other seven, we wouldn't care about this story. Um, but because of who Jackson was as a player, and because of who he has become as an American cultural figure, in the decades since his death, that uh, that makes the story far more intriguing. That uh, you know, uh, W. P. Kinsella in Shoeless Joe, the book that became Field of Dreams, uh, wasn't the only novelist to find Joe Jackson an irresistible figure. That shortly after Jackson's death, Bernard Malamute pu uh, published The Natural. Now they're different stories, but uh, certainly the foundation for Roy Hobbs is Joe Jackson and the foundation for that story that, uh, you know, Roy Hobbs, Roy Hobbs is a different character than Joe Jackson. It's obviously a different story. But, you know, Roy Hobbs comes from this, uh, you know, sort of mysterious background out in the uh, hinterlands of America. He's uh, carrying his own handcrafted bat, just as Joe Jackson did. Uh, that uh, in the story, he is offered a bribe that he first accepts and then refuses, reneges on. And, um, 
the, you know, the, the other characters in that novel are sort of, uh, you know, amalgams of the other people in the Black Sox story. Uh, Landis, Comiskey, and, uh, you know, Arnold Rothstein, uh, chief among them. Um, so anyway, you know, Jackson's been this in incredibly irresistible figure for, you know, literature and um, history. Um, there's no question that he was guilty of what got him thrown out of baseball, that he accepted the money, he knew there was a fix, uh, a conspiracy, he knew he was considered a part of that fix, and he did not report it. That's what got him thrown out of the game. Uh, that's what got him indicted, that's what got him thrown out of the game. Um, he did nothing to lose the series, he batted 375, hit the only home run, hit a, set a series record for hits that stood for half a century, and um, you know, otherwise played, played brilliantly. If you're the writers looking for players who might be in on the take on this, Joe Jackson is never the guy you would have, uh, you know, thought of. Um, there's also, you know, a lot of question on whether or not Jackson was, um, you know, ever agreed to participate or whether he just stopped refusing to participate. That when Chick Gandil first approached him, he said no. When Gandil approached him again, he said no. Gandil said, well, okay, it's going to go ahead anyway. Uh, you know, if you don't want to get on, that's fine, but this is going to happen anyway. And Lefty Williams was Jackson's surrogate in all these meetings. Lefty Williams was, uh, you know, that people asked at one of those meetings, is this okay with Jackson? Is Jackson on board? Uh, Jackson will do whatever we say, uh, said Williams at that meeting. Um, so, um, you know, he's, he's a sympathetic figure in that uh, way as well, which is why when you couple, with, couple it with the appeal of his story, with the sort of vulnerability he has from his illiteracy and his, uh, you know, country bumpkin ways that got him, uh, you know, unmercifully persecuted when he first came into the game, um, and people see him as a vulnerable figure. They visit his grave in Greenville, South Carolina and leave mementos, bats and balls and gloves and shoes, always shoes. Uh, and notes proclaiming, you know, a belief in his innocence. Uh, so he's really sort of seized the imagination of the American uh, public, and you know, um, I think he's better off also outside the Hall of Fame. Uh, that uh, you know, that there's all these petitions. The most recent one uh, came just last year when Rob Manfred was uh, named commissioner. That uh, people from the Joe Jackson Museum in Greenville uh, gathered up another petition to have Judge Jackson reinstated. And uh, Manfred this year, you know, sent a letter back to um, the museum uh, people and said, "I don't think it's appropriate for me to reopen this at this time." Um, I think that's probably good that um, put Joe Jackson in the Hall of Fame, he's one of 325 people. Uh, you keep him on the outside looking in, he's Joe Jackson. He's the guy at the center of this. He's the guy that is either the victim or the criminal, depending on your perspective of this. Uh, he's the guy that raises the questions of, you know, should we forgive? Or should we hold him responsible for you know what he'd admitted to doing in all of this? I think those are relevant questions. They're certainly interesting questions, and I think they're good questions to have. They come up in the Pete Rose case, and uh, you know they're going to come up in the uh, you know the case of the performance enhancing uh, drugs people when you know their cases uh, come before various veterans committees some years down the road. Your, your questions are all fascinating about uh, th those ideas, and those are uh, the type of things we try to get into in these clubhouse discussions, which makes them so interesting. And there's so many <coughs> characters in this book, non-ball players, 
We don't have enough time to go through all of them, so I'm just gonna throw out some names, and if you can kind of just let us know who they are. Mm -hmm. Some of them, I think people will know who they are uh, to some degree, and others they may not have heard of, mm -hmm. but I just wanna get their names out there. The first is Charles Comiskey. Um, Charles Comiskey was a cheap son of a bitch, but he was, <laughs> but he was not as cheap a son of a bitch as uh, Eight Men Out portrayed him at. That, uh, you know, he did not pay his players well, but he paid his players no more poorly than any other owner in baseball. That, uh, you know, the salaries on the White Sox are consistent with the salaries um, across baseball. He was really a brilliant baseball executive that the White Sox were the marquee franchise in the first, uh, you know, two decades of the major leagues. And uh, that was in no small part due to Comiskey's baseball acumen. He put the team together and his business acumen. He made it, uh, he made it a great success. Uh, Kennesaw, Judge Landis. Um, judge Landis was the most famous jurist in America. Uh, it's hard for a judge to be famous, but uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis was famous. In 1907, he fined John D. Rockefeller $29 million for violations of the antitrust law by Rockefeller's uh, Standard Oil Company. Uh, that made headlines nationwide. Here was a courageous jurist standing up to the robber baron, finding him this money. <laughs> All of America applauded. Nat Landis became a national figure in that. Um, Rockefeller said it will be, Landis will be dead a long time before that fine is paid. Uh, and uh, Rockefeller was absolutely right. Landis made headlines with a lot of his rulings from the bench, and a staggering number of them were overturned on appeal. Uh, which did, you know, nothing really to hurt Landis's reputation. So when uh, the Black Sox scandal broke, there was a move not so much to identify a strong leader and bring him into a game, but identify an independent uh, person with no ties to baseball who could come in not to rule the game independently, but to wrest power from Charles Comiskey. Comiskey was the, the guy who put the consortium of owners that identified Landis and brought him into the game. Um, that uh, not so much to uh, you know, be that strong leader that he became, but to wrest power from Van Johnson, who was Charles Comiskey's mortal enemy. He was the next name, Van Johnson. Um, Charles Comiskey's great friend when they were young men that uh, you know, they had known one another in Cincinnati. Johnson was a sports editor. Comiskey was the manager of the Reds in the early 1890s. They both aspired to greater things and uh, that together they sort of resurrected the moribund National League. And Johnson was president of the National League. Uh, Comiskey was a franchise uh, owner in St. Paul and then later moved it to Chicago. And they aspired to take this league uh, big time, that they were going to be from the beginning. They were gonna make it the next major league which in 1901 they did. They announced they weren't bound by the national agreement anymore, they weren't bound by the reserve clauses of the other teams, and they signed away boatloads of uh, National League stars and gave the American League sort of instant parity with the National League in 1901 and forced the merger two years later. I mean, the American Football League took nine years before they could force the NFL into merger. The American Baseball League took only you know, two to you know, have a merger with uh, the older National League. Um, but, and when they, you know, came to Chicago and Comiskey moved his franchise to Chicago, Van Johnson and Comiskey shared an office in the loop. Uh, that Comiskey running the White Sox, Johnson running the American League. Uh, they vacationed together with their wives. They vacationed together on hunting trips. But somewhere over the uh, years, a, you know, fissure 
uh, entered the relationship. And it started, we think, with small things. It may have been, uh, you know, Comiskey embarrassing Johnson on a hunting trip that they took. It may have been, you know, something else. But, you know, as these things do, it festered and grew, and by 1919, it was a bitter, bitter enmity on both sides. A name that a lot of people may not be familiar with, Alfred Austrian. Alfred Austrian was Charles Comiskey's attorney. And um, on the day after the season ended, uh, the day after the series ended in 1919, uh, Comiskey went to Alfred Austrian and said, look, I think seven of my players were, he did not include Weaver in this group, I think seven of my players were compromised during that series. We gotta do something to protect ourselves. Uh, and what Alfred Austrian did was hire a team of private investigators who followed those seven plays. Not all of the seven. Jackson was not followed, uh, and Gandil was not followed. Uh, but, uh, you know, the others were. And uh, the private investigators uh, reported back to Austrian and Comiskey. And uh, not, Comiskey was not looking so much to find out uh, whether or not his players were guilty so that he could suspend them. He was looking to find out whether there was any smoking gun out there, if this uh, story was about to explode. And the private investigators all came back and said, well, they may know more than they say, but they've got a great incentive not to say it. I think that there's nothing out there that's going to happen. So Comiskey signed the players for the 1920 season. Um, from that point forward, there was nothing in the way this story unfolded that Alfred Austrian was not involved with. He was involved in bringing Landis into the game. He was the guy who approached Landis about uh, joining the game. He was the guy who coerced the confessions out of Seacott, Jackson, and Lefty Williams on the day that the whole story broke. And I have plenty more questions, but I, I want to give uh, our clubhouse crowd a chance. So. Uh, my answers have been very long. I no, they've been outstanding, fa fascinating. Anyone want to lead off? As, as best we can determine, somewhere between eighty and $100,000, uh, that the money came from Arnold Rothstein, um, that he was the only one who had that kind of money. Uh, the people who gave it to Chickie and Deal were Rothstein's operatives. Um, we know Seacott got $10,000. We know Jackson got $5,000. We know Lefty Williams got $5,000. Hap Felsch said he got $5,000. Uh, Swede Risberg's mistress told one of the private investigators that Risberg got $10,000. Um, that, uh, that leaves, and, and if you give $5,000 to Fred McMullen, the utility player, uh, that leaves an awful lot of money left, and uh, whether it was $80,000 or $100,000, and the best speculation is that Gandil kept all of that, that, uh, you know, the players uh, were convinced that Gandil was double-crossing them. Gandil said, oh, the, the gamblers are double-crossing us. The players were convinced it was their teammate who was double-crossing them. What was that multiples ter terms their salary? Like um, that for Lefty Williams, it was twice his salary. He made $2,500. For Joe Jackson, it was almost his whole salary. He made $6,000. Seacott, I think, made $6,000. So, you know, it was a significant piece of money. I mean, you know, which one of us in here, if somebody comes in and offers us, you know, uh, a large fraction or multiples of our annual salary wouldn't, uh, you know, say, well, what are my values here? <laughs> Anything else about Eddie Collins? Um, you know that, uh, 
No one, no one has ever suspected the athletics of uh, throwing the 1914 World Series until this, uh, you know, sort of insatiable curiosity about uh, the Black Sox and, you know, following the things back and, and what was illogical in uh, all of this. What, you know, what outcomes were illogical? Because the Reds was an illogical, uh, you know, winner over the, uh, the White Sox. The White Sox were heavily favored. And certainly the Braves sweeping the athletics was uh, an illogical outcome. That there was a, uh, you know, quote from Buck Weaver, uh, in this that intrigued me, uh, that he said, you know, the athletics were much the better team in 1914, but nobody's accusing them of lying down. And the way he said it made me think that that was probably a part of the conversation then, uh, that, you know, that was probably one of the series that came up uh, when players were talking and wondering about what, uh, you know, series was uh, fixed and what was not, um, you know. Um, there's no whisper that Eddie Collins was, uh, you know, uh, ever connected with any gamblers or, you know, ever crooked in any way. Uh, let's give Eddie Collins his due there, and let's damn him not for what might have happened in his playing career, but what happened in his general managerial career when he kept the Red Sox lily white uh, for his, uh, you know, owner Tom Yawkey. Uh, you're gonna damn Eddie Collins, uh, Eddie Collins for something. Damn him for that. Yes. And you, you, know, you mentioned Donald Gross thing. We all know that he was like behind the whole thing. But mm -hmm. I heard that Nicky Arnstein was also mixed up in it. Uh, Nicky Arnstein was one of Rothstein's confederates, and he was involved in a lot of things that Rothstein uh, was involved in. Uh, Nicky Arnstein, if that name sounds familiar to you and you can't place it, uh, funny girl, Omar Sharif. Uh, Nicky Arnstein was Fanny Bryce's uh, husband. Um, less rakish in real life than, uh, than Omar Sharif, uh, you know was. Uh, I, I found, uh, you know, no mention that Rothstein's confederates in this uh, were a guy named Nat Evans, who was his partner in the gambling uh, salon that they ran up in Saratoga, and uh, Sport Sullivan, who was the Boston uh, gambler that uh, was the intermediary, intermediary with the players, and Abe Battle, who was the uh, former feather, featherweight champion of the world and was sort of a Rothstein factotum at that point. And, you know, that there's, again, I don't have any proof of this, and I didn't write this, I didn't speculate about that in the book, uh, but it seemed as though Attle was around in case Rothstein needed a fall guy. He could throw a battle to the wolves. Yes, sir? Uh, there were rumors that Hal Chase had participated in this for some reason. Hal Chase was, um, according to the testimony of the two guys who became the star witnesses in the criminal trial, um, Sleepy Bill, Bill Burns and Billy Maharg. Bill Burns was a former journeyman uh, major league pitcher and Billy Maharg was a uh, Philadelphia boxer and a friend of Burns's. And they were trying to put together a fix. They were trying to get Rothstein to, uh, you know, uh, finance a fix. And they consulted uh, Hal Chase. Burns and Hal Chase were friendly. And they consulted Hal Chase. And, uh, you know, could this be done? How should this be done? Um, you know, the extent of Hal Chase's involvement beyond that is a mystery that, uh, you know, it was said that he bet money and won money on the series, but, you know, no one has any proof of that. He was indicted 
with the players, but he never stood trial because they couldn't, uh, you know, uh, gain an extradition from, uh, you know, California. So, um, you know, he was among the indicted who never, there were three or four people who were indicted who never stood trial. So it seemed like all of the players, or seven of them, accepted money, but only two guys paid the price? What, why was that, that only the two guys ended up being the four guys? Um, what two guys do you mean? Uh, Bucky and Joe Jackson. Well, uh, that they were the two. They were the two, probably, uh, you know, least guilty or most innocent of those. That um, you know, Seacott and Lefty Williams were absolutely involved. Gandil was involved. Um, Swede Risberg was involved. Fred McMullen was involved, but didn't really have a uh, role in the series. He only had two at bats. And you know, Hap Felsch had a miserable series, but he insisted afterwards that he was trying. He just had a miserable series. He batted 192 and committed a very, you know, um, egregious error in the outfield. So the so. question I had is, why didn't they fall? And it's because they didn't admit the guilt. And oh no, they all did. They were all banned from the game. <coughs> oh, okay. All eight of them were banned from the game. Okay. Yeah. Just curious about the subtitle of the book, the 1919 World Series and the birth of modern baseball. What do you mean modern? How is um, baseball modern after the World Series? That um, the, um, the, the reason for that was that, uh, that what came out of the Black Sox scandal, maybe not necessarily because of the Black Sox scandal, but what came out of the Black Sox story, the, the commissioner the game of the 1920s, the, the sense amongst the American public that this was an anomaly, that, uh, you know, that baseball was uh, pure and perhaps awkwardly governed, but it was pure until these seven, eight miscreants uh, defiled it, and uh, they were dealt with swiftly and surely by this new commissioner who was brought in to clean up the game, and so baseball could, uh, could go on. Baseball you give, did. You give the example of Van Johnson, in, I guess 1920, uh, upset about all the rumors, etc., and saying that when there was a series in the Boston Braves Stadium in Boston of not allowing Sports Sullivan and the other gamblers to have their little hangouts at the stadium, etc. But then when the next series began with the Red Sox at Fenway, they didn't make a big thing out of it. They allowed them to be there. When Landis took over, did they start banning people from being those kind of people in stadiums? Um, that the the banning of gamblers was sort of an ad hoc thing. Um, you know that uh, the National Commission threw some people out of various stadiums. Uh, that uh, Ban Johnson was the leader of that, and it did not escape the notice of the National League owners that he was harsher on National League parks than he was on American League parks, and that he was making more headlines, uh, negative headlines for National League teams than he was for American League teams, um, and. Um, you know, but but after um, the Black Sox scandal, after the banishment of the players, uh, that was quieted down. That there was still gambling in the stands, but the uh, you know the relationship between uh, ball players and gamblers was all but eradicated. There were a couple of dust ups uh, after that, but for the most part, that eliminated gambling. That sign went up in the locker rooms. Anyone betting on a game or anyone caught throwing a game will be banned permanently from the game. Um, that uh, you know, and the players now, just as in the earlier um, years, they said, "Well, nothing's going to happen because look at Al Chase; nothing happened to him." Uh, they're going to say, "Well, look, they threw out 
Joe Jackson. They threw out Buck Weaver. Buck Weaver did nothing. Well, they threw out Joe Jackson. They threw out Eddie Seacott. You know, the, you know, those guys were, you know, potentials. Jackson was a surefire Hall of Famer. Seacott was a, you know, uh, possible Hall of Famer, as was Weaver. Um, you know, so if you're a player, you say, hey, you know, it's not worth it. Uh, so that's where the, you know, the birth of the modern game went. That, uh, and it was, without question, better managed under an independent commissioner than it ever was under you know, the two league presidents who worked for the owners and you know, one owner who served as the chairman of that uh, commission. Yes, sir. Did Rockefeller ever pay that fine? Oh, no. It was, it, was over, it was overturned <laughs> and, on appeal. And, and who were the other three people who were indicted, but they couldn't extradite them to the Um A battle. Um, who was, um, you know, uh, one of the first ones indicted, and you know that's one of the great comic moments in this. That uh, you know, there's a, there's a, the, the line between comedy and tragedy is pretty thin, and um, you know one of the characters that we haven't talked about is a guy named Bill Fallon, who was Arnold Rothstein's attorney, and um, Bill Fallon was involved in a lot of. Uh, you know, things here that uh, Bill Fallon arranged to have the confessions of the players stolen from the Cook County, uh, you know, courthouse. Uh, but when um, the Cooks County was seeking to extradite Abe Adel to bring him to Chicago uh, to stand trial, uh, Bill Fallon brought Abe Adel into court and says, this is Abe Adel, he is my client, but he is not the Abe Adel that the Cooks County State's Attorney wants. That was a different Abe Adel. And Bill <laughs> Fallon brought you know, a paid witness in uh, to say, that's not the Abe Adel I met. So Abe Adel was never, uh, you know, uh, never indicted. Uh, that there was um, one of the gamblers who were indicted. There were sort of um, you know, second string gamblers from St. Louis and Des Moines. Uh, that were indicted along with the players. They were chumps, uh, you know, that they were, you know, basically people who weren't, um, you know, slick enough to, uh, you know, keep their name away from this. And uh, one of them did not uh, stand trial. Oh, and excuse me, and Fred McMullen did not stand trial because he arrived after the trial started. Uh, and because the trial had started, it was judged that he could not uh, participate as a defendant because he had not been there from the beginning. He was scheduled to be tried at a later date, which of course became moot when everybody was acquitted. Uh, do you have any thoughts about uh, fantasy baseball and its impact on I think Van Johnson and uh, Judge Landis would be, uh, you know, having a very interesting conversation up there in the uh, baseball clubhouse in the hereafter, or perhaps given the, uh, you know, the legacies of both of those uh, down in hell where they're sitting <laughs> over a cold one. Uh, that, uh, you know, after, after distancing itself from gambling, uh, so passionately for so long to not only say that, uh, well, this is okay, but to be partners uh, in this. That's, that's the thing that's, uh, you know, sort of shocking about all of this. I think that's, you know, that's one of the big off-field stories. That's not going to go away. This is going to be one of the big off-field stories over the next, you know, several years. I'm sorry? You want to agree with that? Um, I, I don't care personally, uh, but I think that, uh, you know, how can you not call it gambling? 
Sure, there's skill involved. There's skill involved in picking horses. Uh, you know, that, uh, you know, you watch the horses, you watch how they're, you know, they run, you watch their recent races, you see how, you know, the same thing is in baseball, but yet horse racing is regulated. So, uh, you know, I think we're going to hear, a, you know, a lot more of this. I've got no opinion on whether or not, uh, you know, people should or should not be able to do it. Uh, it'd be very hard to get a Black Sox type scandal out of fantasy baseball because it's not just one team you know, you put together one team and, uh, you know, you somehow pay those nine guys on uh, this given Wednesday to play miserably. Well, it's not just one other team that stands to win. There's 67,000 teams, 67,000 other teams. So, you know, you'd have to have a bet on all of them, and, you know, if you were going to fix one. So, so I don't see, uh, you know, this being a scandal. We're going to get to you, but I just want to uh, throw something in it that relates to this. Uh, I'm not sure if you'll have a, a, an opinion or an answer on this, but I want this to kind of just get out there for the crowd to think about, too. In the book, we're only on page six, and you put on page six, you, you have rule 21D, betting on ball games. Mm -hmm. And I just want to read, it's only two sentences, mm -hmm. and I want people to think about this. The second sentence is, any player, umpire, or club, or league official, or employee who shall bet any sum whatsoever upon any baseball game in connection with which the better has a duty to perform shall be declared permanently ineligible. Pete Rose. Mm -hmm. The first sentence, which relates to DraftKings, uh, and I think this will be potentially a huge story, uh, the hypocrisy of, of the owners from this time until the end of history. Uh, but the first sentence in Rule 21D, betting on ball games, any player, umpire, or club official or employee who shall bet any sum whatsoever upon any baseball game in connection with which the better has no duty to perform shall be declared ineligible for one year. So I think if any official team official, commissioner, anyone in Major League Baseball's office with a team who bets when they, when they finally do determine that DraftKings is betting, mm -hmm. who's participating in DraftKings, of which Major League Baseball is an owner, mm -hmm. the argument could be made they're ineligible from baseball for a year. Yeah, but some lawyer is going to say they're not betting on the game, they're betting on whether A-Rod goes one for four. They may try that. I think it's going to be a fascinating you know, story to watch. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, the, the lawyers are going to be a lot more involved in, uh, you know, any forthcoming scandals, a lot more involved than they were in 1919. Yeah. <laughs> Just something to think about. Yeah. Uh, do you think there is a gambling in the 1918 World Series? And if so, do you think that was the gambling in the 1919 World Series? Um, that, you know, that no one ever spoke of the 1918 World Series being untoward or in any way compromised until 2008 <laughs> when, this, uh, when this file um, suddenly appeared, that uh, the, the archive that's at the Chicago History Museum that uh, was part of the files of Alfred Austria. And in that, we saw for the first time uh, we saw not Eddie Seacott's grand jury confession, which had been uh, part of the, um, you know, the public record. People had seen 
Uh, the confession was stolen, but it was recreated. And the, excuse me, the essence of what he said was there. But what we saw was Seacott's confession to Alfred Austrian and Charles Comiskey in Alfred Austrian's office before he went over to the courthouse to confess to the grand jury. And in that, Seacott said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but this was the essence of his language, um, well, this all started when a bunch of us were going uh, east on the train in uh, you know, our second eastern trip, and we got to talking, and uh, you know, somebody said, uh, you know, I hear the, the Cubs through that series and got $10,000 a man, and maybe we can get us some of that money this year. From that one sentence uh, was the, you know, such is our fascination with this, from that one sentence was this, you know, book and the conspiracy theory regarding that and the conversation about was this, uh, you know, uh, a crooked <coughs> series as well. Um, you know, I, I have no opinion on that. Uh, I, I'm inclined to doubt it. Um, well, that's double dipping on your side. So, yeah. Any, anyone else who hasn't asked a question? Well, the, um, Bill Littlefield last week asked me, I was on his show Only a Game, and, and he asked me, where have people gone wrong in filling these holes? And my answer was, in trying to fill holes that can't be filled. <laughs> that, um, you know, that um, I, in so far as what happened in the series, I have no idea what's right and wrong in Eight Men Out or in any other books because nobody knows what happened in those eight games. You know, that the first two games are, are suspect. That, uh, you know, we've got Ray Schalk going to Kid Gleason, Schalk the catcher, Gleason the manager, uh, saying, Seacott and Williams are crossing me up. That, uh, you know, I kept calling for, uh, you know, lefty's curve and he gives me this flat fastball. How many times did he do that during the regular season? Not once. Uh, and Williams, in his confession, you know, implied that uh, you know he was uh, on the take in game two, and he was uh, throwing up, you know, groove balls in game two, and he was not in games, um, you know, whatever five and eight, uh, which he also pitched. And um, so there was a difference. He lost three games, but to him there was a difference between his loss in the first game he pitched and the next two um, he pitched. I think, you know, what I believe is that, um, you know, there was so much confusion attended to this. You know, who's blackmailing whom? Who's involved? That, you know, the players weren't even sure who was involved in this. Is, is Buck involved? Is he not involved? Is, is Jackson involved? Is he not involved? Um, is, uh, you know, uh, is Seacott trying or is he not trying? Uh, you know, that, that the whole sort of, uh, you know, the, the rumors and the, uh, you know, the innuendos and the, uh, the shame and the guilt that some of the players were uh, you know, laboring under the burden of had those guys so screwed up that they couldn't have beaten the, uh, you know, the girls All-American Baseball League champion in a World Series uh, by that point. And what's lost to history is that Cincinnati played very well. Cincinnati got brilliant pitching uh, throughout that series. Uh, and you know, that 
that you're gonna feel sorry for anybody in this, feel sorry for Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Reds, who you know, have gone down in history as accidental and undeserving champions, and uh, they all went to their graves believing exactly the opposite. I've never understood why Jackson's ban applied to post-baseball barnstorming. When you read about his barnstorming career, and there's a scene at the end of the movie with him and Weaver, I forget, one's in the stands and maybe they're both playing against each other, but that Jackson, you know, played across America or wherever he played under. Jackson. Says, I've never understood why the ban applied to barnstorming, and as part of that, could you talk about your sense of what barnstorming in Weaver's career was post-ban? It, it, it banned only barnstorming games or games play. involving anyone from organized baseball. You know, if I'm banned from the game, I can play baseball with anybody in this room. But Babe Ruth and it, Gehrig on their tour, I can't play with them. Or right, but you know, if you're in, if if you play anywhere in organized baseball, in the majors or any of the minor leagues, and you're in that game, I can't play in that game, or you can't play in that game, or you get uh, you know banished from uh, the game. Jackson played into his 40s. That you know he played uh, you know semi-pro teams throughout the uh, throughout the South. Uh, that there was a handful of games that uh, the players played in together uh, immediately after the summer of 1920, you know, after they were thrown out later that summer of 1921. That faded very quickly and they sort of scattered to the uh, four corners of the earth. Uh, all of them played baseball, you know, Gandil <coughs> played in an outlaw league down in Arizona. Uh, Swede Risberg played in Minnesota. Uh, McMullen played, McMullen's a, you know, an, an interesting story. He was such a fringe figure but his post-baseball life, he would show up uh, at various uh, you know, California semi-pro games and he would practice and he would take batting practice and outfield practice and then when the game would start, he would leave because there were frequently players from organized baseball and he couldn't play with them or they couldn't play, so he would respect that and leave. And the other interesting thing about McMullen is that you know here's this guy that was thrown out of baseball for being a criminal. His last job was as a marshal in Los Angeles County. <laughs> uh, they were thinking the uh, state did not prove their case. They were not charged with throwing a ball game. That was not illegal. There was no law against throwing a ball game. They were uh, charged on a whole array of arcane charges. And uh, the most understandable of them is conspiracy to damage the business of their employer. Uh, and in his charge to the jury, Hugo Friend instructed the jury, now they are charged with this, uh, unless you believe that they were deliberately trying to hurt Charles Comiskey's business by losing the games, you must find them not guilty. Uh, which they happily did, uh, and uh, you know the players were taken from the courtroom. The jurors were taken from the courtroom on the shoulders of the spectators that had stuck around to hear the verdict. So I blame this entirely on this the advent of, of these awful pitch effects and nonsense that all these TV people are doing now with the, with the that makes everyone an expert on the strike zone. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm hearing a lot more rumblings from from average fans these days about umps and about umps being on the take or about umps being terrible X, Y, and Z. In your research, I, mean, I know in the NBA there was that one ref who got yep. the, uh, busted for it. And has, did, have you done any research or spoke to anybody in that kind of world where 
that's been talked about at all? There were a lot of incidents back in the 1870s, 1880s, where, you know, during the, uh, the heyday of the Hippodrome and where the umpires were uh, involved and, you know, caught and, you know, some of them thrown out of the game. Uh, there was an attempt to bribe Bill Clem, who was Hall of Fame umpire, in that one-game playoff, the, uh, the Bonehead Merkel game in 1908, when you know uh, his base running blunder, not touching second base on a single, resulting in a force out, um, that uh, before that game, that uh, somebody allegedly came up to uh, Bill Clem and offered him $2,500 in cash if he would uh, make sure all the calls went the Giants' way and see that they win sure. Is uh, how that it was <laughs> how it was reported. So, but n I, I have s seen or read about nothing in the um, you know the the nineteen oh one forward game. So the modern game, really. The modern game, yeah. The positive about the technology, right? It builds a baseline, right? So like mm -hmm. over time, you can see like if a umpire sort of swayed out of what's normal, you'd at least have the data to show that. Now. Yeah, that you know. Just a guess. That I, I think that you know any player will tell you that umpires have tendencies. They call low ball strike, you know, wide strike zone, narrow strike zone, so and things like that. you saw that at least over the course of a season, and then in the playoffs, he or she went totally the other way. You. The only interest would be the, if there was the data to show it. Right? If there was something aberrant from that, yeah, exactly. if, you know, if. Uh, the you, point is the the technology allows <coughs> us to actually do that. Yeah. That didn't exist. This, this, uh, anyone else who hasn't asked a question, we have time for one more question. Yes. So this is all happening in 1919, right after the, the end of the war, and I'm wondering what the situation was, and um, the country was with the war and this game. The war, there's actually a chapter on World War I in the book, because I thought it, there were so many pieces of what happened during World War I that you know, led into pieces of the Black Sox story. Uh, one of them was the ball players, uh, you know, leaving their teams to play for shipyard and munitions plant teams, and you know, which was perfectly legal. Uh, the draft law said you've got to work or fight and work in a defense-related industry. And these defense teams, uh, these defense industries, all had baseball teams. Everybody had a baseball team. Every business had a baseball team uh, in those days. And so the shipyard and munitions plants and other factories doing war work was able to recruit a lot of baseball players. <laughs> that really alarmed Major League Baseball because you know the reserve clause didn't apply to that. That you know Major League Baseball was not Major League Baseball. It was 16 guys, some of whom were very wealthy, a couple of whom were very wealthy, most of whom were scraping by. And you know now you had a big corporation that could pay whatever they wanted and give the players their off-season employment. Uh, that alarmed them. So those those players were put under you know great stress. Their salaries was depressed. Jackson was one of them. They were, uh, you know, excoriated by their owners, and you know there was a there's a rancor there on both sides, um, and you know the other one was Ban Johnson. The other piece of World War One was Ban Johnson had uh, made so many missteps uh, during that 1918 season, that during the 1917-1918 seasons, that uh, that really made his situation untenable. That uh, you know he made it possible for Charles Comiskey to take power away. In our discussion, we've only been able to touch on these topics. Uh, the book is fascinating and extremely layered and extremely well-researched. Uh, for those of you listening, the name of the book, The Betrayal of the 1919 World Series and the Birth of Modern Baseball, published by Oxford University Press, written by Charles Fountain, 
Thank you so much for being here. Thank you.